you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast Off Target, shares of the big box retailer crumble after an earnings miss on a weak holiday forecast targets troubles. A sharp contrast to Walmart's better than expected results. Who's got the true read on the health of the consumer? Plus, is a major housing correction unavoidable? That is a question being asked by the Dallas Fed. The details from the new report and the potential ripple effects on the economy straight ahead. And later, tracking two earnings movers after the bell. NVIDIA, higher despite a miss on profits and margins. And Cisco, charging higher on better than expected results. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Karen Feinerman, Julie Beal, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start off with another post-earnings plunge for Target. The retailer stock falling more than 13% after its latest warning. That was its fourth biggest drop on record in its second double-digit plunge this year. Target profits collapsed by 52% in the third quarter, with a spike in shoplifting contributing to the losses. The results and performance a complete 180 from what we saw from Walmart yesterday, whose stock rose for a second day after its better-than-expected report yesterday. So is this a Target-specific problem, or is this the real read on the consumer as we head into the holidays. The backdrop, of course, also that the markets traded lower today on the back of this. Karen, what do you think? I think, well, a lot of those things are true. It might be both. I thought I thought this was a bad call. I really didn't like the I, I didn't like how uncertain they were about their business. I understand it's really hard at these times to know. I mean, we talked, you and I talked before the show about they seem pretty optimistic later in the, in the summer about how October would be. And yet on the call, they talked about October. By mid-month, something sort of went wrong, and they see that continuing in November. I know that Walmart talked cautiously as well, but this seemed different. Also, this $400 million shrink charge, mm-hmm. this theft, I'm sure it's a, it's a real problem. But that is a very big number, and obviously what that does to your margins when you have all cost of goods sold and no revenue, that's bad. Um, But they seem to have that problem worse than others. I really, you know, the retail data out today was good. Yeah. So I was very disappointed with this, and I looked at some other things. You looked at, you know, TJ Maxx, which also has a home goods part. That part didn't do well, so I understand Walmart, which, I mean, Target, which has that's a good margin business for them. That didn't do well, and they don't have the groceries like Walmart does. I was very disappointed. And then one more thing, this two to three million dollar cost cut, cost save. Right. Why now? If it's so glaring and so obvious, right, where was it all along? That sort of made me think, all right, don't look at this, look at our cost cut. Right. And and the wording around the cost cut was very interesting. As much as two to three Mm. million dollars and billion billion dollars, excuse me, short of job cuts. So they're not going to lay anybody off to achieve this cost savings, but they're willing to do all these other things. So, so maybe the problem is not as bad. The problem seems bad if you're using phrases like meaningfully softened in the last two weeks of the month. Yeah, absolutely. The revenue trends 
progressed through the quarter and just got worse and worse and worse. I feel like this concept of, oh my God, part of what we're having trouble with is shrink and theft. That feels a little bit like the dog ate my homework. What really this is, is we are not managing our inventory properly. We have too much of it. It's the wrong kind of inventory. And for Target, the critical component of their shopper is they need to come in there and buy pillows and cushions and all this stuff that they absolutely do not need because the groceries are not enough to really drive that business the way that it will for a Walmart. But if we're getting to a softer consumer who's getting constrained by higher prices from inflation, they're not buying no cushions. Like, they're not. No, I mean, you don't need that. You sit on the hard floor. You live in the old cushions that you've got, like Guy does, I'm sure. You've got cushions from, like, 1970, Guy. But I want to return to the question that we asked, and that is, what is what is the true read on the consumer? Because we saw the markets soft today. And granted, we had a rally yesterday, but still, you know, Target comes out and says all these things that the consumer behavior change in the face of rising rates, in the face of inflation. And that gets one worried, I would think. The answer is they're both a true read on the consumer. And what's happening is people are going, you know, they're moving towards Walmart for a myriad of different reasons, not least of which groceries. And Target's product miss suggests people don't want what they're selling. I mean, they'll rip stuff off, apparently, but they're not buying it <laughs> at the cashier, which is important. No, and, you know, and, and to this quarter, I mean, this is, a, this is a really bad job communicating what they should have known weeks ago. I mean, they'd missed... $1.54 was EPS, which was about 26 cents lower than the low end of the street. They missed by about 50 cents or so, which is catastrophic. Inventory still, I think, were 17% inventory build year over year, which is still really bad. There's just really nothing to like about this. And gross operating margins were half of what they were this same quarter year ago. So they're operating poorly. Now, in terms of Brian Cornell, he's been there for eight years. He's done a great job on the margins. But the last couple of disasters are all on target, in my opinion. And I'll tell you something, because as you know, my heritage, I'm half Italian, half Sicilian. $400 million, they, for, for 10% of that, I could hire a swath of people around the country and nobody would rip off anything in a Target store. Just saying. Well, they just have to station you by the shelves, Guy. Nobody will rip anything off from a Damn Target straight, store. Sister. Um, but, Dan, what is, what is your take? Is this a Target-specific problem, or do we extrapolate this and, and say, you know what, it wasn't, you know, Walmart is doing great, but really there is a fundamental problem with, con- with the consumer, and they are changing their behavior. Well, I think that Walmart and Target have been telling us that all year long, if you think about it. And so the divergence between the way that they're managing inventories is really probably a a company-specific or a management-specific thing. But if I look at what investors are saying about this today, Mel, I look at Macy's, I look at Best Buy, I look at Dick's, all down about 8% here today. And so if we're talking about some of these more discretionary sort of items away from, you know, food and gas and, and staples, that sort of stuff, I'd say that... This is kind of like the death rattle for the U.S. consumer after a very uncertain few years here. And, you know, again, we were talking about it with Walmart. I was a bit surprised at those results the other day. Um, But again, I think it's more to the staples. And they've been telling us that a certain um, part of the consumer has been trading down and that's been going on for months. So to me, I would say Walmart is probably a bit of an outlier. And when you think about the heavy discounting and the inventory issues that a lot of retailers have, into this holiday season, I don't think it gets better early next year. So to me, this is not a space that I want to be buying the dip. The silver lining, though, to this all, to this notion that the consumer is slowing down, is feeling the pain. And I'm not an optimist by nature. Um, But the silver lining is that what the Fed is doing is working. 
right? And so maybe this gives the Fed a little bit of a cushion to back off. Maybe this cements the idea that 50 basis points is going to be it for a while, perhaps. And then there's an opportunity to pause, Julie. Maybe this is really optimistic. I mean, yes, but no, right? Because if you're saying I'm going to cut two to three billion, which I don't know where, but I'm not going to fire anyone, that's actually not what the Fed wants to hear. What they want to hear is we're going to have to cut employment, especially at this level where we're seeing the most wage inflation. And that's what the Fed is the most concerned about, is the stickiness of inflation, particularly on the wage side, and the strength of employment. We want to continue to actually see employment soften or that we don't have a prayer of controlling inflation. So I actually, you know, it's great to say that we're going to get deflation from these discounted cushions and and clothing, but it's really not going to be enough to offset higher housing pricing and, you know, what's happening in wages. One other interesting data point today, though, was Lowe's, right? You would have thought, given what Target said, that that same consumer wouldn't be at Lowe's. And yet Lowe's had a great quarter and Lowe's talking about, you know, the sort of refurbishing business is still very good. They did a good job managing their business. So it seems a little more idiosyncratic to me in a difficult backdrop. But some do seem to be managing it OK. TJ Maxx. Home Depot was, was Home Depot. good, too. So right. maybe it's that kind of good. Consumers are willing to go and buy paint and things like that that will actually add value to the house. When you're talking about a, a lamp that's the shape right. of a teddy bear or, or a cushion, you know, <laughs> yeah. with embroidery on it, that's right. not going to add lasting value. So maybe the consumer's a little bit uh, more yes. discerning in terms of what they spend and how they spend it. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Guy, <laughs> um, is this actually optimistic? I, I know what you're going to say, but I'm going to ask you anyway. It's through the lens that you just put out there. In other words, is this going to take the Fed off the front burner in terms of what we're all watching? Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think all these data points suggest that what you're saying is it is working. So if the only reason to be bullish for equities is the Fed is going to somehow slow things down, as Dan would say, have at it. The problem is they can slow down and the backdrop is such that things are still slowing down and multiples should still slow down and people should pay less for earnings which by the way are also slowing down so although you can get the fed off our back which Mm -hmm. is a great thing i'm sure everybody would be excited about that there's no denying that there's certain things going on and we didn't even mention twos tens in the first seven minutes of the show yeah but now extended out to extraordinarily unhealthy areas that's it i say it all the time i'm not smart enough nor humorless enough to be an economist, but I will tell you, <laughs> 65 or so basis points inverted in twos tens is no bueno, sister. Some, sometimes you are cloudy, though. Um, and, and the notion, Dan, that we all had that if the 10-year yield went down, that that could be runway for tech stocks to go higher. I mean, that's maybe dashed a little bit. We're at 369 at this, percent, at this point, and what's happened? Nothing. Yeah, that's to me, Mel, the biggest surprise today about the price action in the markets to see that the 10 year yield finally give it up. And, you know, after Thursday's 30 basis point drop after that CPI print, which I think we would all agree was pretty, you know, eye popping there, the continuation of it lower. um, And then the fact that some of these higher valuation, you know, names that don't have earnings um, that are still expensive, even after being down 50, 60 percent or so, couldn't catch a bid uh, on this price action. I know we're going to talk a little bit um, about NVIDIA's earnings, but this is going to be a really important one to see how this stock 
trades because I think a lot of tech investors were waiting kind of to get a sense of what the guidance looks like and how the stock at least is going to trade relative to the expectations. It had a massive rally off the lows. But again, I look at all these names that started getting killed in 2021 before the Fed even indicated that they were raising rates, the thought that they were going to have to to battle inflation, they just started getting murdered in the perception of a higher rate environment. And they haven't really stopped until very recently. All right. Our next guest sees a year-end rally coming, but beyond that, she's staying defensive. Let's bring in City Global Wealth's Kristen Bitterly. She's the head of North America Investments. Kristen, great to have you with us. Um, calling for a year-end rally, it's a very short time frame at, at this point, getting shorter and shorter. Um, it's amazing how the calendar goes by so quickly. So uh, the next month and a half, so you're really being tactical about this. But beyond that rally, you actually see uh, 3,900 for the S&P 500. Yeah, so I, I think to be clear, we see we see a potential for a support to this rally, depending upon what the data tells us over the next couple of weeks, which are going to be pretty critical catalysts. That being said, what happens over the next couple of weeks does not change our, our base case for a recession at the beginning of next year. We believe that that's going to start in Q1 of 2023. And we actually see an earnings contraction of upwards of 10% in, in U.S. equities. That is clearly not priced in at these levels. That is something when you look at analyst consensus, we're anticipating about 5% growth. And so I think the overarching thesis is what could happen short term versus what's going to happen in 2023. You can't fight the Fed. And this idea that 7.7% on CPI and getting down to their 2% target and that a 50 basis point hike is somehow dovish. We just don't buy that. We believe that we're going to see continued tightening financial conditions. And until we see a material movement in inflation or a deterioration in employment, the Fed's not going to change course. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So what's going to cause the rally then into December? I was wondering if you thought there's maybe tax loss selling for people who want to harvest losses and that that could weigh on the market for a while. And when you look at our targets, I mean, really, it's kind of right around where, where the S&P 500 is. So, again, it's kind of support argument for, for what we've seen. I think what you could see is ultimately light positioning, some market resilience, sentiment. If we do get now the December 13th date, I think is really critical because if we do get a reduction in CPI, all of a sudden you could see the market reacting very positively to that and carrying through to year end. On the flip side, given this light positioning, if CPI actually comes in higher, you're going to see the opposite. So if there's any type of retracement of some of the inflationary pressures, which we could see in airfares, which we could see in terms of energy pricing and, and that sector, then that would obviously do the opposite in terms of light positioning and light liquidity going into your end. So, Kristen, what is defensive in your view? You recently so went overweight fixed income, right? Is that it? We did. We did. So our portfolios right now, they're actually defensive and leaning into quality, both in terms of fixed income as well as equities. We are overweight fixed income, but within fixed income, we are overweight investment grade. We're overweight U.S. government munis. And to a certain extent, we have um, preferred exposure as well, just given the, the high yields there. On the equity side, we're looking at all of those sectors that basically can grow earnings throughout a recession. And so healthcare, pharmaceuticals, consumer staples, when you look at their growth rates during the past four recessions, they've been able to grow earnings anywhere from five to eight percent. And so given the fact that our base case for 2023 is a recessionary environment and our equity portfolios, that's where we're positioned. What is it? What is the risk reward, though, for being long um, into the CPI print? Because it sounds like you think that if CPI is hotter, we're going to see a, just a, a crush of a, of a sell off. 
This is a great question. And I think one of the things that we've been doing in terms of this rally is actually using it as a way to position more defensively, rebalance portfolios. Another great strategy, just kind of looking, depending upon whether you're already invested or whether you're sitting in cash. So if you're already invested, using this rally to actually hedge. So there's that whole thing, sell the rips, buy the dips. But you can actually just simply on this rally, put on some hedges going into year end. So that way you still have some exposure, but you're able to protect against a 10, 15% decline. If you're someone who's sitting in cash, another strategy, and we've seen a lot of volumes going into this over the past couple of weeks, and some of that activity actually drove the market higher last week, is just simply buying some upside. So buying some, some upside calls, call spreads in terms of being positioned in the market, but obviously mitigating some of that downside risk. Kristen, thanks. Kristen Bitterly. Thank you. A city. Dan, you're all about the selling the rips here. Yeah, I listen, I thought that was a really great discussion by Kristen, because, again, it, it plays out a couple different scenarios that could happen. And, you know, the likelihood that, um, you know, we come in and we have hotter data. I mean, none of us knows, because like even on that CPI print last week, you know, uh, it was explained away. It wasn't even that soft. Right. But the market absolutely ripped. So to me, I think the market is setting up for a rally, you know, a continuation of this rally. Guy's been saying fourth thousand, maybe oversheet to, to 4,100. That's the declining 200-day moving average. That's the downtrend in the S&P 500 that's been in place since the all-time highs the first week of this year. I think if you get there on anticipation of some sort of um, softer Fed action, I think you sell them and then you sell them again, um, because I just don't think that with tighter financial conditions, even if the Fed is not going to be doing the 75 basis points that they've been doing for the last four meetings, we're still going to have tighter financial conditions and still S&P earnings are not low enough for 2023. I liked your strategy of selling upside calls. Mm -hmm. If you are a long investor like I am, you kind of want to hang on to things. But I do think this run has been big. So I sold some GM calls, sold some JP Morgan calls, sold some URI calls just to take a little bit of money off the table. Yeah, I'm not nearly sophisticated enough to work in hedges, but I think it's impossible to try to time the market. And so for us as long-term investors, investing in the quality that she's talking about, what we're really looking at is really durable earnings businesses. So if I think of a Rollins, literally every year, 5%, 10% top line, EPS growth from share or purchase, good capital allocation, I think those are the types of businesses you want to own when it's an uncertain environment. Up next, we've got some after-hours action coming your way. Shares of NVIDIA on the move after reporting results. We'll bring you the details next. Plus, don't think big, think small. Why some small cap names could be the place to be. Julie's making her case straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Back in two. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on NVIDIA. Shares are higher despite posting a miss in profit and gross margins well below its previous forecast. Christina Partsonevelis has been listening into the call. She's got the details. Hey, Christina. Hi, Mel. So management seems like they see a light at the end of the tunnel with NVIDIA CFO just saying on the call, we believe channel inventories are on track to approach normal levels as we exit Q4. The bar was pretty low with estimates. NVIDIA managed to beat that for revenue, and that's helping the stock a little bit. Uh, the guide for Q4 was flat at $6 billion, not down, flat. And another positive sign, it expects adjusted gross margins to be 66%, well above estimates and the previous quarter. So the big question is, which segments are going to actually keep growing? Data center revenue was up 31% year over year. Sounds great, but only up 1% on the quarter. Some of that growth was impacted by softness in China over the new U.S. export rules for AI chips. Keep in mind, those chips that now NVIDIA is going to sell from China, they have a lower selling price, so that's going to hit margins. I want to point out, too, auto segment also grew 14% quarter over quarter. They're on the call right now, and they believe that that's going to continue to climb. Gaming beat estimates, but was still down a whopping 51% year over year, reflecting lower prices, especially for laptops. The CFO pointing out that secondhand market or the secondhand market hurt sales since miners got rid of their GPUs after the Ethereum transition. So they're still feeling that pain. The Q&A is only just beginning right now. All right, Christina, thanks. Keep us posted. Christina Partsonevelis, a guy sort of a messy quarter here. Yeah, it is a messy quarter. This quarter last year, they did $2.5 billion in net income. This quarter, they did $700 million. That's a decline. And the same thing on terms of, if you look at, um, in terms of EPS, I mean, you're talking about pretty much in half from the same quarter of last year. It's not good. Talking about a stock, by the way, which in a month has rallied over 50, 50%, and is still probably trading at 14 times, 13 and a half times revenue, and probably 32 times next year's numbers. It's an expensive stock. Great company, expensive stocks. I'm surprised we're up in the after hours. I would have thought with this gross margins and operating margins, we'd be lower. And I think it should be lower at some point tomorrow. There's a lot of call to go, as Christina points out. The Q&A is just beginning. So, uh, Dan, what do you make of this here? Do you, would you want to be long in NVIDIA, um, given what you think is going to happen with the markets? No, I, I mean, listen, the, the guy just said it's a great company, great management, great products. They have tremendous headwinds just when you thought that maybe some of the you know issues that they had with the supply chains and some of their customers, then you have that um, export ban drop down. They think they have a workaround on a different chip here. I'll just say this about the gross margins. I mean, that, that is a pretty staggering miss. And when you look at Q2, you know, they came in at 50, uh, 46% gross margins. Uh, Q3, the one just reported, 56. This company was averaging 66% gross margins in 2021 and all of uh, fiscal year 2022. So the idea that they're guiding the 66% in Q4, I mean, a lot of great stuff has to happen here. So I'm a bit skeptical that, you know, this Q4 number is achievable. And and again, I mean, they just beat, you know, wasn't a big beat by any means, but they guided down last quarter. Remember twice, twice last summer, they guided down or this past summer. So to me, um, I think visibility is probably kind of weak. I I am also surprised the stock's not in the aftermarket. 
Yeah, I agree. I think the gross margin is the place where I'm paying the most attention to because I think it's going to be kind of an ongoing theme. We're going to see revenue doing a little bit better because inflation is helping, and then we're going to see gross margins and operating margins be really under pressure because of higher costs and mix. I think that's going to be a consistent in semiconductors, but I think we're actually going to hear that over and over again as earnings progresses. And I think the thing to keep in mind is, so what we have is we have earnings contracting, even with a little bit of top line. We have multiples contracting. It's hard to really get enthusiastic about opportunities longer term. Yes, the comps will get easier in 2023, but we're kind of a long way off of that. So yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm not really keen at this level. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Russell with some muscle. Could small caps be your port in the storm? Why one of our traders says it pays to be choosy in this market environment. Plus, housing market mayhem. Could we be in for a repeat of the great financial crisis? The stark warning from the Dallas Fed ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Major averages all closing in the red today with the Russell 2000 index leading the losses down nearly 2%. The small cap index outpacing the S&P 500, though, so far this quarter, though, losing a bit of steam since the start of the month. One of our traders thinks there is a big advantage in some small cap names. That would be Julie. <laughs> what do you see here? I, you know, I think... I really am grateful to be right now a small and mid-cap investor. I am avoiding a lot of the FX headwinds. And, you know, we talk about FX as if it's this, you know, artificial thing that changes numbers, but it, it impacts your business kind of long-term. You're not deriving as much cash flow as you would. So that's one. Two, a lot of these small and mid-cap businesses, they have control of their supply chain. They're usually, they're usually less complex. They're usually less followed, which is great for investors. There's just a lot of reasons. And I think generally speaking, I would prefer to be domestically focused. I think it's the U.S. is the least bad neighborhood to be investing in right now. The thing is, I wouldn't say that you should be broadly buying the you know, Russell 2000 basket because I think that there's a lot of risk within small businesses, too. They don't typically have as large of a cash cushion, so you have to be very choosy. You have to have pristine balance sheets. You have to have businesses that have earnings. I mean, you know, just the basics. But, I, you know, I think generally speaking, they're pretty well positioned longer term. So let me ask you, when you look at metrics to decide whether you like something, do you look at return on invested cash? Is that an important metric for you? Absolutely. I think cash flow is pretty critical for these smaller businesses. They really live and die off of their cash. They typically, it's harder for them if they're going to go to the debt market. So it's really, really critical to be able to look at the cash returns on their business. We like businesses that aren't very capital intensive to begin with. I actually meant return on invested capital when I said ROIC. I didn't say it, but okay, both are yeah, important. Yeah, I think both are really important. It's really wonderful when you have a business where it is the master of its own destiny because it's generating so much cash. It's wonderful when they can be using that to buy back shares or you know, selectively make acquisitions. 
Um, and I think in the healthcare space in particular, those tend to be less capital intensive businesses. Right. Guy, what do you make of the recent outperformance of small caps? Yeah, look at the IWM. I know Julie's not talking about the IWM, but since we'll probably pull it up, you have a little bit of a double bottom, 162.5. It traded down to in June, traded back down again in September, held, has bounced. Not a great day today, um, but I think that augurs particularly well. I've always thought the small caps are sort of a leading indicator for things, but I'll tell you, today wasn't a particularly great day. And I think if they're going to be macro headwinds, a lot of these small caps are not going to be immune to that. So I think she's smart to point out the value in small caps, but I also would be quick to point out that if the IWM can't close above 190, I think we probably take out that 162 and a half level and we're having an entirely different conversation. All right, coming up, a bubble of trouble, the big warning from the Dallas Fed on where the housing market could be heading. We'll go inside that report next. Plus, we're all over Cisco in the after hours, the details from the quarter and where the stock is heading when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. A bleak new analysis out from the Dallas Federal Reserve. Central bank officials warning a 20 percent drop in the housing market in terms of prices is in the cards. And if that happens, that could put a real dent and real personal consumption expenditure. So is a major housing correction unavoidable at this point? Let's ask Peter Bookvar, chief investment officer with Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. We use the term bleak on purpose since you're from Bleakley. Uh, Peter, um, you agree Thanks, with Marissa. this, that, that, <laughs> that this is a possibility. Do you see that 15 to 20 percent number that they sort of threw out there as a, as a scenario um, a likely one. Well, in cer- certain markets, for sure, particularly the hot ones. And just to give perspective, over the last two years, home prices are up 40%. If you look at the time frame between 2013 and 2022, home prices went up more than the 1998 through the 2007 housing bubble. So it's an extraordinary uh, rise. And now you have 7% mortgage rates, which are 15-year highs. Uh, So it has all the ingredients to see uh, a notable fall in home prices. But again, specifically in the hottest markets like Mm -hmm. Phoenix or Miami. Now, on the other side, there's a dearth of inventory. 92% of people that have mortgages have a mortgage rate below 5%. Many of them are not going to be anxious to get out of those mortgages and move. So the one thing that can mitigate a sharp decline is that dearth of inventory of existing homes. However, new homes, those inventories are building rapidly. So Richard Bernstein Advisors tweeted out something very interesting to me, Peter, today, and that was, remember what happened to Texas real estate during the energy bust in the 1980s, right? We saw a real downturn there. So what is happening in Silicon Valley and those sort of hot formerly hot housing markets, we're seeing the layoffs begin. We're seeing a contraction in these sorts of businesses, these growthy businesses, even in the more established businesses like a meta. We're seeing job cuts. So what happens in those markets, particularly as mortgage rates are above 7 percent? I mean, it, it almost seems like, you know, people may leave their homes. Who are the buyers of a home in an area where the jobs are not few and far between, but they're not really hiring at this point, and your mortgage rate is 7%. Right. It's going to take, to your point, much lower prices. I mean, in the aggregate, housing all in is about 15 to 18% of the U.S. economy. And we saw what we heard from Walmart and Target, one of the areas of weakness were things related to the home. 
And but your your point about that particular market being weak, yeah, we're going to see pockets like that. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago where it cost you a million and a half dollars to get a 500 square foot uh, home in in Northern California, and that certainly is going to change. But it's also going to change for that in, entire economy uh, as well, and making it a, a more attractive place to bring in new jobs. But yeah, there's adjustments to be had here for sure. In the Dallas Fed's analysis, Peter, they specifically outlined the scenario of, of a drop in housing prices of between 15 and 20 percent. And if we saw that drop, it could shave off between a half a percent to seven tenths of a percent in real personal consumption expenditures. And I'm wondering, you know, it's that doesn't sound like a lot. But can you put that into perspective for us? Well, the, the wealth effect with housing is much greater than it is for stocks. Consider 65 percent of households own a home, the balance rent, whereas in the stock market, the top 10% own north to 85% of stocks. So that five to seven tenths of a percent of 70% of the, the economy is, an, on a dollar basis, a very noteworthy number. And that's just looking at it in isolation. Just imagine the ripple effects. As I mentioned, housing is almost 20% of the U.S. economy, and 20, almost 20% of the U.S. economy is in a recession right now that will continue into next year. All right. Peter, thank you. It's always good to see you. Peter Bookvar of Bleak Thanks, Lee. Same here. <laughs> um, so then we, you know, so we had Home Depot yesterday. We had Lowe's today, and they were still good relative especially to Target. What happens now? If we think that this is the ripple effect that is sort of being unleashed in the economy right now, Guy, I mean, what is the writing on the wall in your view? Yeah, who's impervious to that, right? I mean, look, Home Depot at 18 and a half times is cheap to itself, still trades more expensive than the broader market, but it's relatively, um, I think it's fair in this environment. And they should win to, listen, either side of the equation, Home Depot's proven they're a great operator. But this is what the Federal Reserve wants. As a matter of fact, you go back a couple of meetings ago, before Jerome Powell left the stage, he actually threw in, and by the way, millennials, I'm paraphrasing, think twice about buying a home. So what's happening right before our very eyes is everything that they want to happen. And to think there are going to be no knockoff effects or we may be able to sort of skate through this entire thing unscathed on the back of that, I think is foolish. I think there is pain to come in the housing market, and I think we're seeing it in the form of a target's earnings. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, particularly on the concept of millennials, I mean, the housing is really where most Americans pick up their own wealth. And that's, you know, it's just forced saving. And everyone assumes that prices are going to continue to go up. But when we have reached the levels of unaffordability that are at records, it's, it's you know, it doesn't make any sense to really think that there's going to be an improvement in housing. What's interesting is in the last housing downturn, the majority of people had variable rate mortgages. And this time, everyone did a great job mm -hmm. getting 3% mortgages for 30 years. And they're not going to move. Even, you know, it really, it's the only thing that's going to move is is, you know, death, divorce, and, you know, excesses of debt. So, you know, it's, I think it's going to be slow for it to really change as opposed to other intermar international markets like the UK, where you have so much more variable rate that's going to kick people out because of unaffordability. Coming up, more after hours action this time in shares of Cisco. That stock's on the move after delivering results. Details from the quarter next, plus how retail traders are responding to the FTX collapse. Financial streamer Jason Frank, a.k.a. The Stock Guy, will join us to explain. Don't go anywhere. Back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Bath and Body Works. Shares are soaring by almost 22% after the company beat Q3 earnings expectations. Also raises forecasts for the full year. I guess they're not buying cushions, but they're buying bath bombs mm-hmm. and uh, mango lotion guy. You know, we, we're pondering the move that we saw in Bath and Body Works up 21%, and we immediately thought maybe there's a high short interest, but it's only 7% or so. No, I mean, listen, it's obviously a surprise. I haven't looked at it. I apologize. But what I'll say is, yeah, people are buying the, the pillows, apparently. But if you go back and look, Peter Bookvar apparently bought some of those pillows. If you go back and take a look at what he had. <laughs> Uh, and the facial scrubs are leaving it up to people like me. I can't speak intelligently about Bed Bath and Body Works. Maybe Karen has more to say. No, nobody owns this one. <laughs> but we thought we'd bring it to your attention because it's it's up 21%. So, yeah, we're going to take a look at this one. All right, meantime, we got another earnings alert on Cisco. We do have a lot to say in this one. <laughs> Shares jumpy after hours on the beat on the top and the bottom lines. The company also issuing strong guidance for next year. Frank Holland has been listening into the call, is here with the details. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. A lot of talk about supply chain on that call. But as you mentioned, Cisco shares are moving higher after that beat on revenue and EPS. Solid quarter overall with solid forward guidance. The top range of full-year EPS above estimates. The Mislin margin, really the only question here. CEO Chuck Robbins has said the company has redesigned hundreds of products due to supply chain issues from COVID lockdowns in China. That margin miss could be seen as a sign of continued supply chain issues. But Robbins said on the call just a short time ago, those issues are easing. Over the last few quarters, you've heard me talk about the actions we've taken to navigate supply constraints. These actions are paying off and are contributing to our results. We now have greater visibility in the ramp of our customer product deliveries, which in turn gives us greater confidence in our fiscal 2023 outlook. All right, Robin's also detailing Cisco's backlog. Forecasting will reach a record of at least $8 billion by the end of the year. A signal of strong demand that's moving other component makers higher. And then later on, just coming up, we're on Mad Money. Right after Fast Money, CEO Chuck Robbins. He will be there with Jim Cramer talking about the quarter and much more. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, thank you. Um, Dan, Nathan, record backlog. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, Mel, not just that. Their annual recurring revenue increased to more than $23 billion. That's nearly half of their total revenue, and that's growing uh, 12% year over year. This is a stock that trades 12 and a half times earnings, so well below market multiple, well below many of its peers. It only has expected mid-single digits earnings and sales growth. The margin miss, it's nothing like what we were talking about with NVIDIA. I mean, it was just really like a bit of a rounding error. Um, You know, this stock was trading at 20-year highs coming into 2022, down about 30%. It did have a nice rally from the high 30s to the mid 40s into the print. But this is like a good quarter, good valuation, good balance sheet, good dividend yield. I think that, you know, Chuck Robbins is probably executing well in a difficult environment. Uh, Bath and Body Works may not be one for you guys, but certainly Cisco is. I know you yeah. I know you got a lot to say on this one. The 4P is only 13, even though it's trading at, as Dan pointed out, 20-year highs. Yeah, I, I had a hair less than that. It doesn't matter. But, you know, slow and steady wins the race. I mean, they're going to have 6 7% EPS growth, maybe at the top end 6% revenue growth, trading at a reasonable valuation with a recurring revenue stream, which in this environment I think is worth its weight in gold. So the fact that Cisco sold off, I think, from 61 to dance point in December of last year to levels we're seeing now, I mean, I think this is about as defensive as you can be in, a, in an industry where a lot of high flyers are getting beaten up. Yep. Coming up, the Twitch take on FTX, what retail traders are saying about the crypto collapse. Financial streamer, the stock guy, Jason Frank, will join us next. Fast Money's back in two.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Mark your calendars for a can't-miss interview. Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao joins Squawk Box tomorrow at 7 a.m. to talk about the FTX fallout and the future of the crypto space. That is a must-see interview. And speaking of the latest fallout, Gemini, BlockFi, and Genesis all announcing new restrictions on everything from loan originations to fund withdrawals as the FTX contagion spreads. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers are calling on FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried to testify before the House Financial Services Committee about the implosion of his crypto exchange. Joining us now to talk more about the fallout and its impact on retail traders is Twitch streamer Jason, the stock guy, Frank. Um, Jason, in case you don't know, has got a huge retail trader audience on his Twitch channel. Um, so, Jason, tell us how they've been responding. I mean, in the past, people have, have seen pullbacks as buying opportunities. I imagine it's a little bit different this time. Well, I mean, as far as the crypto space right now, I mean, you've got basically it's broken into four factions at this point. You have your people that were, you know, anti-crypto the whole time or saying, hey, see, we told you so. You've got your, you know, your side that is, you know, the 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 big fans of personal owning and and, and and having that cold storage telling you, hey, listen, we told you own your assets. The other side is the retail traders that are on these exchanges that don't know what they're doing. I mean, we saw this massive influx of retail traders over the last two years in equities as well as crypto. They don't know what they're doing. They're all waiting for some signal. And then you have, you know, everybody else who's just memeing the heck out of this entire thing right now, which I think is the vast majority. So I feel like everyone's kind of waiting on what's next right now. And, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's kind of like playing this side of, of well, I told you so, I told you so. And it's just we're, we're, we have to wait to see what happens from the fallout. You know, it seemed like there was a tremendous overlap, Jason. This is just, you know, my perspective on things, um, having followed sort of like a lot of the meme stocks and who's in the meme stocks. There's a lot of overlap between those sorts of investors who got into trading, trading those stocks first and the influx in money into crypto. And so on two fronts, they've been burned. What what is the temperature? You've been talking to a lot of these investors, hundreds of thousands of them um, by this point. How, how are they feeling about investing in general? Do they feel burned? Do they feel like the game is rigged? Do they feel like they, they want to keep investing? I mean, as far as, I mean, we have to break it down into two sectors. There's trading mm -hmm. and there's investing. So a lot of these guys that are new coming into this really don't understand the difference. A lot of them see these, you know, these meme runs from two years ago or they see the crypto explosion and they say, oh, that's going to be me. I want to get on the next one. They get in, they, they, they get burnt or they buy at the top. They catch, you know, a falling knife and they're out or they just keep going until they blow up their account. Then you have the others who get into it and they get burned in the beginning and they say, OK, let me take a step back and let me understand how the market works. And I feel like there's there's two different sectors there. And, and, and right now, I would say the retail trader has been all but wiped out for the most part compared to where we were a year ago. But the retail investor, I think, is just getting started. What is a retail investor doing at this point in your view? And what do you what are you telling them to do? I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a buy the dip kind of guy. I mean, I mean, we know that the the, the macro environment right now is very very choppy. It's very very volatile, uh, and we know that we've got a lot going on. The Fed's continuing to raise rates. They're saying they're going to raise it even if we hit a recession. We've got you know what's going on with China. We've got you know Russia. There's a lot going on, but. Over the course of time, I think that as we get more people interested into the stock market, we're going to see them. So we've got some people that are day trading, some people that are short right now. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think a lot of firms and a lot of uh, analysts are really understanding how much cash these guys are still sitting on. And you're saying basically buy um, steady Eddie sort of stocks and then sell premium against those positions. 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think two things. I know energy had a big run this year. I know that we're waiting for the Fed to cut rates, you know, and then we're going to probably see a rebound in, uh, in, in growth and in spec stocks, you know, ARC and the Russells and whatnot. But in that meantime, I keep hearing this, this phrase, the lost decade, lost decade thrown around. Crypto's down. Oil's up. We don't know. Eventually, it's probably going to have to come down. You've got metals are no longer moving at the same point. Commodities are all over the place. And the dollar is at, is at recent highs. Equities are where it's at. And I think everyone's just waiting for when the Fed actually shows where they're going to pivot if they do and when they do. But as far as what I'm telling them now, I'm saying, you know, stick to your plan. Maybe be a little bit, you know, a little bit, you know, more often with smaller amounts on your, your, your dollar cost averaging. But I really think this is going to be the year of the divvies. Uh, even if we flatline or chop in a channel for a year or two until the, the terminal rate comes down, I think dividends are where the, I mean, I know defensive stocks are strong right now, but I think dividends are being overlooked right now. Big, strong stocks, you know, and even if they hold flat, you're still going to get that compounding, you know, dividend paid in. And so that's where I'm at right now with me. All right, Jason, great to get your read on the retail trader slash investor out there. Appreciate it. The stock guy, Absolutely. you can check out his Twitch channel. Um, it's important, though, also to keep in mind that, you know, investing in dividends, the stock itself can go down as that dividend goes higher, Karen. So you have yes. to look for the stocks that have great balance sheets, great growing businesses, et cetera, et cetera, on right. top you of could have that dividend. AT&T or Verizon for mm-hmm. a long time down getting that dividend. Right. You're in and you're out and that losing money. But I kind of I got to say, I'm a little bit surprised that this is his focus. You know, that seems interesting to me. Like he's talking to this retail trader and say, right. think about the long div- term. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, if you are a retail trader out there, you might be wondering how you can get in on the action selling premium against your positions to make money uh, a little bit more safely. Brian Sutland joins us now for a little options action 101. Brian. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you talk about owning stocks, selling some premium, I think what Jason was basically hitting on is large cap value stocks. That's that's an area that we, we focus on in our fund. And I like finding those names to own right now as well. And if you want to take in some additional premium, selling a call on the upside is the right thing to do. And look, I like looking when the VIX is around 25 or higher and it's come off its highs, meaning that the stock market sort of bounced off the lows a little bit, but premiums are elevated. That's what the VIX measures is premium of options. Now's the time to look and start to sell. And so if I'm looking at something and I find a strike price, let's say about 10% or so or more to the upside, looking maybe at some technicals, 52-week highs or some support resistance levels above that 10% level, that's an area I can pick for a strike price to work with. And then for stocks, I like looking about six months out. If it's an index fund, you know, S&P 500, maybe I'll only go three months out. But stocks, I like to at least get a couple earnings in play here and go six months out. And so let's say, for example, Intel, right? That's a a tech stock, but it's actually considered a large cap value. That's a stock I like to sell. I can sell a call maybe out to June, Mm -hmm. the 37 and a half strike or whatever, collect a buck, collect some premium. And that's a stock I'm going to probably keep in my portfolio and own and take some premium in. All right, Brian, thanks. Uh, Options Action, full show, 5.30 p.m. on Friday. Up next, Final Trades. We're out of time, so here are the desk's Final Trades here. Thanks for watching. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 